we just want to thank you for the things that you have done, the testimonies given tonight. We thank you for using us in your service, for caring and loving for us. We thank you for the cross. Lord, we just thank you for working in lives. And Lord, just uh, uh, taking Brother Lewis, who was literally at death's door and needed uh, open heart surgery, back to the point to where he's standing in the pulpit and preaching forth your word again. We just want to praise you for it. And thank you for giving us life and ability to serve you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Brothers, go ye. Amen. And the rest of us, let's take our Bibles and turn to John chapter 8, and then we'll go to 2 Corinthians chapter 7. And uh, we are in a, in a series on how to witness, how to tell others about Christ. And uh, tonight I would like to deal with a word that's really not used that much in the Bible, only once actually, but uh, it helps us understand a lot about what salvation is and what true salvation is and what just a profession or a, a hope-so salvation is. I'm, I'm glad that the Bible gives us a no-so. These things have I written unto you that believe on the name of the Son of God that ye may know that ye have eternal life. And John chapter 8, some of you will remember this chapter. It's uh, somewhat famous in the Bible. It's the story of the woman taken in, in adultery. And uh, we come here. Uh, let's just read, uh, starting in verse 1. Jesus went unto the Mount of Olives, and early in the morning he came again into the temple, and all the people came unto him, and he sat down and taught them. And the scribes and Pharisees brought unto him a woman taken in adultery. And when they had set her in the midst, they say unto him, Master, this woman was taken in adultery in the very act. Now Moses in the law commanded us that such should be stoned. But what sayest thou? This they said, tempting him, that they might have to accuse him. But Jesus stooped down and with his finger wrote on the ground as though he heard them not. So when they continued asking him, he lifted up himself and said unto him, them, he that is without sin among you, let him first cast a stone at her. And again, he stooped down and wrote on the ground. And they which heard it, being convicted, the only time in the Bible this word is used, by their own conscience went out one by one, beginning at the eldest, even unto the least, and Jesus was left alone and the woman standing in the midst. When Jesus had lifted up himself and saw none but the woman, he said unto her, Woman, where are those thine accusers? Hath no man condemned thee? She said, No man, Lord. And Jesus said unto her, Neither do I condemn thee. Go and sin no more. Now, we have that word convicted or conviction, and we use that word today. Uh, actually, the more correct biblical word when we talk about conviction and we're talking about um, is the word repentance, or actually what leads to repentance as we get into Second 
Corinthians in just a few moments, but I want to just stop right here and, and look at what happened and, and get the story. Uh, Jesus was teaching in the temple. This was the last week of his public ministry before his crucifixion, before the burial and the resurrection of Christ. And he was teaching in the temple. Now, you'll notice that he was sitting down as he was teaching. Now, we do things opposite. Uh, we let people sit and the teacher stands. In, uh, in the Jewish tradition in Jesus' day, uh, it was actually the opposite. Uh, the teacher sat down and the people stood. And uh, how many of you like the way we do it? All right. That's just a tradition there. And um, so as Jesus was teaching this group of Scribes and Pharisees come up and interrupt his teaching and put forth in the midst of the circle, right in front of the pulpit, or, or as Jesus would have been standing there, not having a, an actual lectern to work off of. He would have been just sitting there before the crowd, and they would have been gathered around him. This woman was standing in front of him, and he, they said, we have... Uh, found this woman, she was taken in adultery, she is guilty. There is absolutely no question that this woman was guilty. Now, the first question that we would have was, where was the man? Because he was just as guilty as the woman was. And that lets us know, and John fills us in, that they were tempting Jesus. They were looking for an opportunity to have something to accuse Jesus of. Well, in order to understand what they were trying to do, we would have to understand the uh, customs of the day, what was going on. It was... Uh, Jerusalem was under the domination of the Roman Empire. There was a Roman governor and uh, a centurion or two always at Jerusalem. It was not what we would call one of the uh, great posts of honor in the Roman Empire. There was always something bad happening in Jerusalem. And so the Romans had soldiers there, stationed there. The actual seat of government was at a uh, port city uh, just east, uh, very close to the modern-day Tel Aviv, called Caesarea Philippi. That's where the governor's seat actually was. But more often than not, to accommodate the Jewish people, he would have residence at Jerusalem, which was their capital. And so what they were trying to do was they were taking this woman's guilt and they said, here's what the law says. And they were envisioning that Jesus, being a strict keeper of the law, would submit to the sentence of the law and have this woman stoned and then they would blame him or, as we might say in modern terminology, frame him for her murder. Now, Jesus saw immediately through all of their subterfuge, all of their planning, their plotting. I mean, how long did it take them to work out all of the details that they could actually catch this person? And as they're standing there, Jesus was sitting teaching, 
And he just stoops down and starts writing with his finger in the ground as though he wasn't, didn't even hear them talk. And you know what they do? They keep asking him. They keep talking to him. What are you going to do? And you could hear the different voices echoing back and forth. You believe in the law, don't you? The law says she should be stoned. What are you going to do? What do you say? Because we don't think you believe the law, you know. And, and uh, they were accusing Jesus because in their minds they had him either way. If he did not step up and fulfill the demands of the law, well, then they could publicly accuse him in the temple compound He doesn't really believe the law of Moses. He despises the law of Moses. He's a compromiser. He's he's been lying to you. He's a deceiver. And, of course, if he stepped up and did exactly what the law commanded, the woman would be dead, and they would be running to get Pontius Pilate and say, he created insurrection in the temple and murdered this poor, innocent, defenseless woman. Amazing. But here's what Jesus said. He said, He that is without sin, let him first cast a stone at her. And then he just ignored them. You know what? I imagine the silence was deafening at this point. And it says that they became convicted by their own conscience one by one starting with the oldest and working to the youngest. And when it was all done, all the accusers were gone. Now, that's the word conviction, convicting. Now, we use it in a little different sense when we talk about soul winning and talk about telling other people about Christ. But I want you to see that this is the word and it works. These men were convicted about one thing. Number one, they were convicted that they were wrong in accusing this woman. Because chances are, it was one of their number that had drawn this woman into sin so they could know when and where the sin was taking place, so that they could have the victim that they needed. Uh, There would have to be some kind of plot and plan, which is why the man wasn't there. Uh, He was doing his part to get Jesus, and so therefore he wasn't guilty. You see how convoluted and crazy that is? But that's where people go. When they refuse to believe the truth about the Bible, it's, it's amazing how far people will go, how crazy they will get. Uh, I guess my favorite crazy story is the little man on Steinway Street I met years ago. And uh, I went to hand him a gospel track. He took one look at it. And he says, I can tell you where all the missing links from evolution were. So what in the world does that have to do with a gospel track, man? But... He was way ahead. He was. He had thought about this thing. He knew I was talking about the Creator God, and he was going to prove to me that there was no such Creator God. And I said, I'd, I'd like to know. that. That's an interesting fact. Where, where are all of the missing links in evolution? 
He said, all evolution happened on a planet inside the constellation of the Pleiades. And Adam and Eve got on a spaceship with all the animals as they are today and came to earth. I said, really? I said, where in the world did you come up with that? He goes, right here. And so being the kind, timid a uh, very careful preacher that I am. He was about yay tall, so I just got down in his face and I said, Sir, I need you to understand something. you got real problems right here. He said, You're nuts. I said, If that technology had existed, where is it? And, uh, of course, he believed that with all his heart. Why? Because he had already chosen to reject the truth of the Bible. There was no conviction of sin, no conviction of the truth that was in God's Word. So there was no witnessing that was going to go on. So might as well have a little fun, amen? Uh, Hopefully, shock him into the simple fact that what he is doing is so absurdly ridiculous that maybe he needs to pay a little attention to what the Bible says. But you see, these men began to be convicted. They were convicted that they were accusing the woman and some of them had to be in on the orchestrating of the sin that they were accusing her of. Had to be. Couldn't be any other way. Some of them got convicted of the fact that they were using her weakness and taking advantage of her to try to trap Jesus. Could you imagine looking at this woman as she was standing there pitifully in this crowd of thousands of people, being publicly shamed as guilty of adultery, and thinking that the only way we can trap Jesus is to occasion the death of this woman. Now, how unbiblical can you get? And they were convicted. Now, I want to read the definition of the word convicted, and then we're going to go to another passage and try to tie things together. It is the mental state or condition of being convinced. Strong belief on the ground of satisfactory reasons or evidence. Settled persuasion. And and I want to challenge you that this is part of the process of giving the gospel. If a person is not convicted of their own personal sin, they cannot be saved. If a person is not convicted, not convinced... That what Jesus Christ did on the cross is the only way to escape God's judgment. There's no salvation. Now, I haven't made a great deal of comment on it, but uh, we had a preacher that was here a couple of weeks ago that was incredibly emotional in his presentation of the gospel Uh, to say the least. And uh, 
Every once in a while, you do need to get shook up a little bit. I'm not quite sure that's the best way to do it, but the simple truth of the matter is you can't scare someone into conviction. It's got to be a willing choice. And as you are sharing the gospel, you've got to ask the Holy Spirit to make you sensitive to look for conviction. If it's not there, you cannot continue. You're not going to get anywhere with your gospel presentation. If someone will listen, give it to them. But don't try to force the issue of praying and asking Jesus to save you if there's no conviction. If they're not convinced that there is no other way, all you're doing is leading them in an empty, worthless prayer. Are are we together on that? Do we understand that if we're going to share the gospel, it's our job to do the sharing. I want you to turn with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 7. And this gets closer to the biblical word. The word conviction, uh, as we use it today, is the step before repentance. And repentance is a necessary... There are four words the Bible uses when it deals with salvation. If it's dealing with salvation, you're going to see one of these four words somewhere in the passage. You're going to see the word repentance or repent. You're going to see the word believe. Uh, You're going to see the word call. You're going to see the word receive. Anywhere the Bible talks about salvation, you're going to see at least one of those four words. Because they are descriptive words. They describe action that is necessary for a person to be saved. Salvation is not just a mental assent. It is not just acquiescence to the truth that's in God's Word. It is conviction that there are no other alternatives. It is conviction that there's nothing else that you can do. And we read here, and uh, let's just start in verse 7. Oh, there we go. Let's get to 2 Corinthians uh, Wondering why the text in my Bible didn't match the text in my notes. There we go. And not by his coming only, but by the consolation wherewith he was comforted in you when he told us your earnest desire, your mourning, your fervent mind toward me so that I rejoiced the more. Now, let me fill in the context here. The Corinthian church had some problems. I mean, some real problems. Problems, immorality uh, of the darkest and most perverse kind by members in the church. And Paul wrote to them and said, listen, you cannot let this go on in the church. You cannot name the name of Christ and live openly in sin. It does not work. And so they did what we call today exercising church discipline. They went to these people and said, you've got to make a choice. You cannot live the way you're living and be members of the church. And until you decide what you're going to do, you will no longer be a member of the church. 
And so they separated them. And, and if I read my Bible correctly, there are some that argue the point. But this man who was involved in this gross immorality repented. And the whole church got convicted of the fact that sin was allowed in their church and it needed to get out. And this Titus told Paul their response to his letter. Paul said, it was such a comfort to know that you were obedient to the Scriptures. You were obedient to the instruction that I gave you through the Holy Spirit, what we call the Bible today. And we come here in verse 8. He says, For though I made you sorry with a letter, that was 1 Corinthians, I do not repent, though I did repent. He said, I'm not sorry now, though I really felt bad about it then. I said, well, maybe I shouldn't have done this. For I perceive that the same epistle hath made you sorry, though it were but for a season. Now I rejoice, not that ye were made sorry, but that ye sorrowed to repentance. For ye were made sorry after a godly manner, that ye might receive damage by us in nothing. For godly sorrow worketh repentance to salvation, not to be repented of, but the sorrow of this world worketh death. For behold, this selfsame thing that ye sorrowed after a godly sort, what carefulness it wrought in you, yea, what clearing of yourselves, yea, what indignation, yea, fear, what fear, yea, what vehement desire, yea, what zeal, yea, what revenge in all things ye have approved yourselves to be clear in this matter. Wherefore, though I wrote unto you, I did it not for his cause that had done the wrong, nor for his cause that suffered the wrong, but that our care for you in the sight of God might appear unto you. Paul said, listen, I wrote that letter not because I was just trying to straighten out the wrongs. And by the way, that wasn't the only wrong in the Corinthian church. He said, I wrote that letter because I care about you and I want you to understand that if you're going to walk with God, you cannot walk with the devil at the same time. It's just the way things are. You cannot have the world and Jesus too. You must make a choice. And he said, I wrote you that letter and it made you sorry. Now, I want you to understand that Paul goes on to say that sorrow was a godly sorrow. It says that the sorrow of this world worketh death. I want you to understand that hell is going to be full of sorry people. If we were to go visit Rikers Island and, and walk down the cell blocks and say, uh, are you sorry for what you did wrong? Well, some of them are going to say, no, I didn't do anything wrong. It was my friends that did it. And blame it on someone else. Well, what kind of friends do you have that will let you go to jail for them? Uh, doesn't sound like very good friends to me. But there would be many who would be on if they were honest, would say, man, I messed up, I did wrong, I'm just so sorry, but I can't go back and I can't change it. Just being sorry doesn't change a thing. If you've ever had an accident 
in an automobile that you caused. You want me to tell you something? You're sorry about that. <laughs> I wish I had just taken time. I wish I had looked a little better. Uh, I, I wish I had been just a little more alert and paying attention so that I would not have caused that accident. But does it take the accident away? Absolutely not. You see, there's a difference between being sorry and being under conviction. You see, it says godly sorrow worketh repentance to salvation not to be repented of. Well, what is godly sorrow? Well, the simplest way I know how to put it is godly sorrow is looking at your sin the way God looks at your sin. You see, we have this fake, fraudulent, blasphemous picture of God that he sits on his throne in heaven with a very high-powered set of binoculars just looking for people. Ah, up, there he goes. He's stepping out of the way. Um, That's not the God of the Bible. He's not just trying to send lightning bolts to burn people up because they step out of the way. That's what the cross was all about. You know why God sorrows over sin? Because it hurts you. It's going to bring death in your life. It's going to bring destruction to those that you know. By the way, God sorrows over sin because it demanded that Jesus Christ, the righteous Son of God, leave heaven's glory and in the darkness be cut off from the Father as He cried out, My God, my God, why hast Thou forsaken me? That's godly sorrow. We can't ever understand what God went through so that we could be saved. But He wants us to get a taste of it. That's what repentance is. That's what godly sorrow is. That's what conviction is. It's understanding that my sin was responsible for Jesus on the cross. Let me ask you a question. We go back to our original story in John chapter 8. Was this woman convinced of her guilt? Uh, I would say there was no question about that. But when Jesus asked her where her accusers were, he said, Hath no man condemned thee? She said, no one's condemning me. Jesus said, I'm not going to condemn you either. But I'm going to give you a charge. Go and sin no more. Do you think she was convinced that what she was, had done was wrong? Do you think that she was convinced that she needed to change her life and the people that influenced her and the people she was around 
so that she could live for God the way she should have? I mean, that's, that's part of this godly sorrow thing. You see, conviction demands action. The action that conviction demands is repentance. And repentance, according to our text here in 2 Corinthians chapter 7, is the result of godly sorrow. That doesn't mean you need to blubber all over the front of the church to get saved. But what it does mean is you need to see your sin the way God sees your sin. It's not just simply a horrible thing. It was a horrible thing that sent Jesus to the cross. And by the way, Jesus went to the cross for gossip just like he did for murder. Jesus went to the cross for lustful thoughts just like he did for adultery. Jesus went to the cross for the little white lies just like he did for all of the great sins down through history. You see... The penalty of sin is death. Godly sorrow does not weigh my sins out. Every once in a while, have someone come and get through part of the plan of salvation and pretty soon they'll be saying something along these lines. Well, you make it out like I'm a sinner like Adolf Hitler or anybody else. You, you make it out like I'm a sinner just as the bums on the street. Uh, yeah. But that's an insult. I don't sin like that. Uh, wait a minute. There's no conviction there. You know what? It's easy to get convicted about somebody else's guilt. It's a little more difficult to get convicted about your own. But if you're going to get saved, you've got to get convicted about your own. How many of you remember that? And if you're sharing the gospel with someone, you've got to give enough time and enough information that they can get convicted about their own sin. Well, we had an inebriated fellow out in front of the church. Stephen and I were out there. He says, next thing you're going to tell me, drinking is a sin. I said, yeah. That it's not a good thing. I said, do you feel good right now? I said, you're not doing anything good right now. I said, it's not a good thing. Oh, and then he went off. You know, let me tell you something. Jesus died on the cross for sin. And if you won't get serious enough about it to understand and be convicted of your own sin... The Bible says you're not going to get serious enough to make it to heaven. And if you're sharing the gospel with someone, I I believe the woman that was taken in adultery, I believe we're going to see her on the right side of eternity. Because she got convicted. The scribes and the Pharisees, Don't think so. You know what? They knew they were doing wrong. 
but they left Jesus. And they went their own ways. Every once in a while, someone will tell me, Oh, I can't come to church. I'm too bad a sinner. I've had some say, Well, the building would fall in on me. I don't think so. That's just backwards pride. You need to understand that Jesus died for your sins. That's what godly sorrow is. That will demand activity on your part. The word repentance, simply put, the working definition, is a change in heart that results in a change in direction. You can't repent without conviction. That's why the Bible word is godly sorrow. That's why the men that accused the woman never got saved is because they had sorrow, but it wasn't godly. They were sorry that their plan didn't work. They were sorry that they had stooped so low as to look at occasioning the death of this woman so that they could try to trap Jesus. I mean, how low can you go? Not much lower than that, my friend. But just understanding that you're a sinner is not salvation. There's got to be conviction. And that comes when you surrender your heart to the truth that's in this book called the Bible. And if someone that you're telling the gospel to is not willing to do that, I would, I would stop. There have been times I said, well, listen, um, you know, I've given you the information out of the Bible. Uh, looks like you would like to think about this a little bit more. What I'm doing is giving them a way out that they don't have to stand there and keep talking about something they don't want to listen to. And they'll, yeah, yeah, preacher, that's a good idea. Let me, let me think on this. Let me get away from you. I'm not going to try to hold someone captive in a conversation that they don't want to be a part of. Because that doesn't allow the Holy Spirit to work conviction. It just hardens their heart toward that conviction. You've got to give room for the Holy Spirit to work. He is the only one that can bring conviction. An understanding of my sin. But that understanding of my sin, if it's godly sorrow will allow me to look at my sin as God looks at it. My sin destroys me. It doesn't hurt God. My sin destroys people around me. It doesn't hurt God. God is sorrowful because of the death and destruction that your sin is bringing in your life. God is sorrowful about sin because it demanded the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. And if you think you're worthy of that sacrifice, you are so far removed from salvation, just, just let me pray for you. We're not worthy of what God did for us. But I'm sure glad He did it. Amen? 
And as God gives you opportunities to share the gospel, the gospel is the death, the burial, and the resurrection. You need to be praying inwardly. God, make me sensitive. Let me see as much as a human being can see whether this person is under conviction or they're just being kind to me to listen. Because conviction is a big part. Can't get saved without it. And it takes time sometimes. And and there's a fine balance. I mean, sometimes we need to just get right in someone's face and say, do you understand that you're a sinner on your way to hell? Some people need that. There are other people who are totally convinced. But what they got to do is they got to develop a conviction that there's no other way than what Jesus did on the cross to forgive them for their sins. Uh, Jude says of some having compassion, making a difference. But whether they need to be shook up a little or loved a little, they still must exhibit the conviction of the Holy Spirit so that they will make that biblical step toward true repentance rather than just being sorry for their sins. And all God's people say, Heavenly Father, we ask that you would give us an understanding of what giving the gospel truly is. The Lord, you would bring back to our hearts and our mind the story of the woman at the well. And Lord, that you would give us spiritual wisdom and sight to understand what conviction truly is. What godly sorrow is working in the life of an individual. Give us grace and wisdom to wait and let the Holy Spirit work instead of us trying to work. We ask for your work in our lives. Lord, we ask for opportunities this week to share the gospel with someone we might meet. In Jesus' name we pray. Before we finish that prayer, before we say amen, give you an opportunity.